0: So, the resurrection, it just happened. Perhaps you remember, we talked about that. What came next? So just to keep ourselves, refresh ourselves a little bit on the resurrection mindset, let's take a second to just recall some of the significant details about the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, there were no Christians. There were no believers. There were no Jesus followers, none. They all believed that the whole thing was over and done, kaput. There was no reason to think otherwise until the resurrection. And then that changed everything. Without the resurrection, there would never have been a church. There would never have been any reason for you to hear of Jesus. There never would have been a Bible like we have the Bible today. The Jewish Scriptures would have continued to exist, likely, but you probably wouldn't have read them. You might not have ever heard of them. Highly unlikely that they would have been in your house. The Jewish Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, is God's Word. It is Scripture. But when we say Bible... We mean the Old and New Testaments together. So, even after Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and then ascended, there was still no Bible. The Bible, as we know it, did not come into existence until about 400 years later. That doesn't mean it was written 400 years later, that the Old Testament was was a already compiled by the time that Jesus was on earth. But those other New Testament documents, obviously, they had not been written until after Jesus. So compiling the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, pulling them all together into one giant volume, that didn't happen. Not until St. Jerome had finished translating them all into Latin, assembling them together in about 400 AD and calling it the Vulgate. Just keep this in mind, okay? Because Jesus' most devoted first century followers never owned a Bible. Most of them could not have read a Bible if there was one. There was no Bible, as we understand it, to read. So yet these women, these men, turned the world upside down. They are the reason that we are here today honoring Jesus. So what happened? Why did they believe? Why is it that we can be so quickly and perhaps easily persuaded to walk away from faith? Jump ahead in time. More time travel. Love the time travel. We're now in the year 600-ish. All right? Precisely the year 600-ish. The Reformation has rescued the church from simply following the word of the church leaders for far too long. Whatever they had said was enforced as being always right, always, always, all the time. And the key principle that arose that continues to shape our beliefs and our practices very much, even to this day, was championed as sola scriptura, only scripture. Only scripture would be our authority. No longer scripture, plus the leader, plus the other leaders, plus the traditions deciding truth and sharing it onwards. Years of awful spiritual abuse had taken place with no accountability. This must change. Accountability is essential. Abuse must stop. But over time, the idea of sola scriptura has been taken to mean that our scripture, or in our familiar language, we would say the Bible, is the foundation of our faith. And it's the difference between something that has been seen as an authority to live by and something that is considered the foundation of your faith or your faith system. But over time, these two things have merged. They they became welded together, inseparable for some, tightly defended as well. So many of you, and you know what, I'm in this group, uh, were raised to believe that the foundation of our faith is the Bible. That as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And if all of it's not absolutely true, then none of it can be trusted. So maybe you grew up with the, uh, well, don't look over there. Don't listen to that with a little bit of fear that you might just hear something or, or see something that would cause you to question, and then, and then the whole precarious pile just comes crashing down. And now I've got no faith because somebody said something. They said there was a glitch. I didn't know there was a glitch, but they said there was a glitch. Somebody told me something that I can't explain, and I'm certainly not going to go look for an answer. So now I can't believe in anything. And in the past, we have talked about genres and styles of writing. But if you go about just reading the Bible, and you only read a verse or two here and a verse or two there, and you don't read it within the genre then you can think all kinds of things, all kinds of odd things. And because we have treated the Bible for so long as one single book, because it has a front cover and a back cover, and not like a collection of ancient manuscripts, if I have an issue in, say, Genesis, then I can say I have a problem with the Bible, with the whole Bible. I don't say I have a problem with Genesis and I should probably look into that and see what it says. I just say there's a thing in Genesis and that thing in Genesis says that there's no value to the whole Bible. So I just walk away from the whole thing because it treated as one unit. It has a front cover and a back cover. Why wouldn't I? One unit that's treated primarily as a flat text and a flat meaning that every single word of the Bible has equal value in revealing the character and nature of God. If all of it isn't true, then you can't say that the Bible is true. And if the Bible is not true, then why would I depend on it? Why would I look to it as a source of faith? So in, in the world that we are living in right now, we have found that there are compelling arguments. There are compelling writers, great thinkers, just have a different worldview, who are attacking the credibility and the morality of our Bible. Bible. They've attacked the credibility. You can't possibly believe, look at all the problems that are there. Let me show you the problems that I've found. And they attack the morality. They say the message coming out of that is not that just just that religion is wrong or just that religion is untrue, but that religion is bad. (laughs) Religion is the problem. So the God of the Old Testament, he's a moral monster. and it, It doesn't take much hearing of that to taint your lemonade, and you start to think there are answers. You know what? There are answers, but they're going to take some work, and they're going to take some study, and they're going to take some time. And who's got the time? I didn't study the problems. I just heard the problems, and I said, that's okay. Faith, hmm, it's all questionable now. I, I, I never heard all that stuff that, about the Bible that they said. Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I just never thought about it enough. And it's still true. It is harder to believe than not to. So for the next three episodes, we're going to build up that foundation. That's what we're going to focus on. We're going to strengthen the foundation of our faith. We're going to examine the foundation of the first century church. And we're going to look at their view. What did they say? What did they see? What did they do? What was their view and how they began to understand the relationship between what they had lived in with the Old Testament as well? And I'm fairly convinced that we should take our cues from the foundation of faith and the way to view the Old Testament from the men and women who were closest to the action, the first century, first followers of Jesus. When we take our cue, uh, we follow what what, what they did. You end up with a long, enduring, defensible, time-tested version of faith, the OG, the original version. So here we go. All right? So let's pick up the story from where we left it off last episode. you remember that? That was this thing called Easter. We do it every once in a while. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to be with the Father. His disciples are in Jerusalem now, and they are trying to figure out what to do next. We got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels. Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Matthew, just kidding, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, all right? But he didn't stop there, okay? He had a good thing going. He said, let's keep it going. And so he also wrote the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke basically documents the next 30 years of what happened following the resurrection. So what we learn is that basically the first thing the disciples did, uh, they got together, and they decided, we have got to uh, replace Judas. That, that dude, he, he betrayed Jesus, but he betrayed all of us. And then he killed himself. Never, never gave himself a chance to receive forgiveness. Then, then he decide, they decided, we, we can't have 11. Jesus said 12. We've got to do 12, so we need 12. Let's do this. So Luke said that he thoroughly investigated all these things. Everything that he writes down is thoroughly investigated, both in his gospel and then in the uh, after the resurrection stuff in the book of Acts. So he says, this is how the conversation went. So you can go to Acts chapter one. We're going to be in Acts kind of all day. So if you want to use your Bible or follow along, you can do that. 121, therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us. So if you haven't thought about this, let me just emphasize this for you a little bit right now. Jesus didn't walk around everywhere he went with 12 guys trailing around behind him okay? Jesus walked around everywhere he went with an enormous crowd tracking along behind him everywhere he went. The longer he was around, the bigger the crowd grew. There were men and women that were with him the entire time of his ministry, beyond just the 12 famous guys, okay? So they said, we need to find someone who has been here the whole time. Verse 22, beginning from John's baptism, right at the very beginning, all the way to the time that Jesus was taken from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we need an eyewitness of the entire adventure. But notice the part that they make is most significant, the most important thing in this person's qualifications, the resurrection. They weren't looking for good speakers. They weren't looking for good academics they were looking for someone who had been an eye witness to a resurrected Jesus. And they elect a guy, Matthias. And they say, hey, Matthias, thanks for joining the team. Here's your leather jacket. And they shift into high gear. Here we go. Seven weeks after the resurrection. Not 20 years, not 50 years, not 70 years. Not a lot of time has passed. Just a little bit of time. Nowhere near enough time for people to begin forgetting the details. Seven weeks after the resurrection, the city of Jerusalem is once again filled with visitors from all over the region because they're coming back for another huge religious festival. While they're there, a huge wind comes rushing through the city. And the disciples, they're all gathered together. So now we've got the 12, but probably we have about a group of well over 100 people, the core group of the Christian faith, gathered together. This wind comes, makes this big disturbance in the middle of the city. And these people are filled with the Spirit of God in some unusual way. And out into the city they go, proclaiming the message of Jesus. And Luke tells us This is what's happening. And so he describes, here we are, we get them in motion, Acts chapter 2, verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd, because the city, again, is full, right? All the Airbnbs are booked, all the hotels are filled, all the hotel pools are just overflowing with kids. Probably there's a traveling hockey team there as well. You can't get a restaurant without a reservation. People from all over the region have poured back in to Jerusalem. Parking is a nightmare. So a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. These people, they have a common language. Multiple countries, multiple regions, but they have a common language, you know, like a trade language. But they also have a home language. They have a heart language. This is the language of my people. Seven, utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? So you got about 100 people, and they are scattered throughout the crowd that's there, and they're talking to different pockets of people. Uh, all these people gathered in the city. Verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? They're listening to what they're saying, but now they're listening to how they are saying it, right? Wait a minute. You are clearly a Galilean, and yet I can understand you, and you're even using my dialect. 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So not a big deal. Don't get yourself excited. There's just a bunch of drunks here. Now, who would add that detail into their story? Why would he do that? You go, it's added because that's what happened. This is the stuff that Luke was researching and, and getting info from, from a variety of on-site sources, the people who were there. So Peter is basically viewed at this point as the leader of the church. This is the Peter that denied Jesus uh, three times. This is the Peter that ran off when Jesus was arrested. Now he's in charge. For those of you like me, who have messed up in your past, this should be an encouragement to you. There is always hope. I probably would have voted uh, to kick Peter off the team, out of the club. But you know what Jesus did? He put Peter in charge. So Peter gets up and he sees a crowd, a crowd that honestly is in some degree of chaos. And he decides, you know what? This looks like a good time to preach. And so that's what he does. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Now, this might have been um, the uh, opening pastor joke. You know, quite often pastors tell bad jokes right at the beginning to, you know, warm the crowd up a little bit, get them on his side. So verse 15, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. (laughs) And then he jumps into it. Okay. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. And he's not talking to a bunch of people who have no idea what had just happened, right? He's not talking to people who have no idea about the recent history. He's in the city of Jerusalem right now, where all of these big events just took place a couple of weeks ago. There are people who were probably there for Passover. They went home, and now they've come back for the next festival, Shavuot. You're not going to believe this. But somebody's talking about that Jesus guy again. What happened? Like on the way home last time, we heard that they got rid of him, that they crucified him. What's going on now? Why are they bringing him back up? He's old news. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. By miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you. This isn't a group of people who who just heard about it right? This is a group of people, many of whom were in the crowds. They saw the stuff that happened through him. As you yourselves know, Peter's not trying to convince these people that something happened. He is just reminding them. This isn't years later. This is weeks later. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You were in that crowd. Some of you were the ones that were yelling for it. You were the ones in the crowd who got worked up and you started yelling, crucify him, crucify him. That was you, 24. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then Peter goes on. He references one of David's psalms as kind of to say to the people there, hey, look, us Jewish people, we should have seen this coming. We were told. This was predicted long ago. We've got prophets. We know this stuff. The prophets foretold a time when this would happen. Then he hits his big point. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we, and he's pointing to his friends that are kind of in the crowd, talking to them in different places, we are all witnesses of it. 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what what shall we do? 38, and Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. It means change your mind. This wasn't a group of people who needed to turn away from sin. They were religiously faithful. They were there for religious reasons. It wasn't that kind of repentance. You need to change your mind about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. And once you've changed your mind, You need to be baptized. You need to publicly identify with Jesus by being baptized. And the text says that many, many, many people embraced Jesus as Savior and turned away from their unbelief. (laughs) This was the message Peter gave to the people. People who were all around him. This is the same message that I'd bring to you also. Repent and be baptized. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your sinful choices and be baptized. We have a baptism service coming up on June 11th. Book it. Save the date. Write it down. June 11th. We're having our next baptism service, and this is your chance. Repent. Turn from your unbelief. Be baptized. Publicly identify with Jesus. If you've never done this, this is your time. No need to wait for a better time. This is the best time for you. Go to our website, intoone.ca. Click on the next steps button in the bottom right corner. Proceed to page two. Click on the interested in baptism link. And let's get this conversation started. June 11th baptism, barbecue, and pool party in one handy dandy celebration package. Turn away from your unbelief. The point being, the very first Christian sermon preached was not about what Jesus taught. The very first Christian sermon ever preached seven weeks after the resurrection was about the resurrection of Jesus. Next big event. Peter and John, they're out in the open. Last episode, we left off. Peter and John were in hiding. Right? They got Jesus, and now they're coming for us. Watch out. We're endangered. We're marked men. We got a price on our heads. And now, these guys are walking around in the busy part of town where everybody can see them. And now, they're unafraid. Peter and John decide to go up to the temple. They should stay away from the temple because that's where the temple police are. And that's where the Jewish leaders are going to be, at the temple. But now they're unafraid. And they approach. And as they approach, they see a guy outside. And he's been there for a long time. Everybody knows him. He's been lame from birth. His friends come every once in a while. They move him around the city, pick him up, carry him around, put him in different places because he's out there looking for mercy. He's looking for money just to survive. He's outside the temple. Peter John, Peter and John, they don't have any money. They don't have anything to give him. And so they heal him instead. And he stands up. And he walks, and, and, and as he walks, he follows them inside, and as one does, when one has been lame from birth, but can now walk, because he's just been healed, you kind of want to see what these healing guys are all about. So Peter, people begin to recognize him as he comes into the temple, but it's a little weird. They're trying to figure out, where have I seen you before? Because they're used to seeing him at ground level, not at eye level. It's a perspective change. They're not ready for it. And now people are gathering around Peter and John. So picture this, right? They're on the Temple Mount. Uh, Just just a few yards over there is the Holy of Holies, right? And this crowd gathers. And you you know Peter. uh, He just can't resist, right? He just starts talking about Jesus again. Right there in the temple area, he points at them and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, Acts chapter 3, verse 13. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You all all remember this, right? Verse 14, you disowned him. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer, Barabbas, be released to you. 15, you killed the author of life. God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. So what was the foundation of Peter's faith? Where did Peter get his hope? Where did Peter get his boldness? How is it that he's now walking around out in the open, whereas before he was afraid and he ran for his life? The foundation of their faith was not something that they had read. The foundation of their faith was something that they had seen. So here's a question for you. If you're a Christian, what should the foundation be for your faith? What should be the center of our confidence? Peter asked him, he'd say, Easy, resurrection. Now they're at the temple. And uh, honestly, the temple's not the best place to preach this sermon. It's not going to go over well if you want to avoid complications. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they're speaking to the people. So none of these people are strangers to the bigger story that's been going on, right? They're all very much involved. They're, they know they're in the midst of it. The temple guards are probably the ones who came out to Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, to bring him in. The Sadducees, that would be like people like in the Supreme Court. They are the rulers of the land, both politically and religiously outside of Rome. So their meeting breaks up. They're having a meeting, but their meeting breaks up because there's a ruckus. There's a fuss. And, and, and oh my goodness, do you see who it is again? It's that Peter guy. Again. Again. Verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Arrest them, get them out of here, let them cool off in jail overnight. We'll check on them tomorrow, you know, when we get around to it. The next day, Peter and John are brought back before this very important group, the group called the Sanhedrin. It's a building that they met in, but it's also the name of the group, the, uh, the, the ruling people. This group is the important group because it's the same group that had gone before Pilate and asked him to crucify Jesus. They know the story. Caiaphas is there. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the guy. He's the mastermind. He's been pulling the strings behind this whole thing. He had met with Judas privately, paid Judas off privately. Caiaphas was the one who was orchestrating, pulling, and then using his own personal authority, his own shrewdness to kind of push Pilate into doing their bidding. These people are part of the story. And now he's about to call before him two of Jesus' followers. Everybody knows how this is going to end for Peter and John, right? We already saw what he did to Jesus. Caiaphas, well, it's going to be poor. That's how it's going to turn out for Peter and John, poorly. Verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? How did, how did you do this? We didn't say, I didn't sanction. Did you, you guys didn't. No, none of us sanctioned this, all right? So where did your authority come from? We are the authority. And the real awkward part for Caiaphas and his guys is that the guy, the guy who's been lame for his whole life just had walked into the temple with Peter and John and he shows up for the trial. You know, oh, this is going to be really hard to get around that one. Because there he is. And it wasn't like they weren't trying to get around it, but there he is. Lame from birth. Everybody knew him, but now he's here and he's walking here. Walking here. Right now. Right here. Most of us, we've passed him for years. Everyone knows him as the beggar outside the temple. So when Peter speaks up, this is so Peter, uh, put yourself in his shoes, okay? Out of nowhere, you get an opportunity, right? Uh, An opportunity that came with the police who brought you to speak at the Supreme Court. There's no script writing. There's no legal counsel. You are a trained fisherman. That's it. That's the experience that you can call on. You are the least educated person in the room. And you're standing right right beside the guy who you know can run faster than you. So you're not even going to be able to get away by running. How would you be doing in this scenario? Verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, verse 9, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man that was lame, that that lame guy right there. Oh, oh right, he is the man who was lame because now he's walking. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, 10, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified. It was you. You did it. You killed him. But whom God raised, from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. 13. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, because these guys are used to dishing out intimidation, they're in charge, right? Peter and John and Jesus before them should have been on their knees begging, crying for mercy. Everybody in that room knew what had just happened to their master. Everybody in that room knew what happened to Jesus of Nazareth because they asked for it. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Nobody's forgotten about it. And now these guys are back in that same place and they're speaking in the name of the guy that we just executed and they're unafraid? They're not distancing themselves from their boss, right? Who was just executed. So how are they unafraid? How was that possible? And the Sanhedrin, they, they realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When you lose your fear of death, your fear is gone. They had seen Jesus die, they were right there. And they thought that it was all over, but then. They had breakfast with him on a beach after that. Now what should they fear? 14. But since they could see the man had been healed, standing there right with them, there was nothing they could say. 15. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. You guys out of the room. And then they they, they conferred together. Verse 16. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. We've tried. 17, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. 18. Then they called them in again. Hey, come back, guys. Nice to have you back. Commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Just stop it. Don't do it anymore. You stop it. Verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. It's what you do for a living. 20. As for us, we cannot stop. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Not what we read about not what we were taught as children, not what we heard about. The foundation of our faith is not a story. The foundation of our faith is an event. So mere one chapter later, Peter and John are re-arrested by the same group for doing the same thing. And in this next incident, we are told that the religious leaders, uh, they're just kind of jealous. Why? Because once again, you've got uneducated Galileans drawing a huge crowd. Why does no one come to listen to us like that? Do you see how fine my robe is? I have a very fine robe, and I have a title, and I've got money. I am rich. Obviously, I have God's blessings. So why are they listening to these backcountry hillbillies when they could listen to me? So they arrest them again. Put them in jail. Again. But this time, somehow, they get out. Spoiler, it was an angel. Next day, the temple guards have to go back to the temple because that's where they work. And here those two are again. And they are preaching in the temple. Again. Preaching about Jesus. Again. So they come up. Do you know how we arrested you last night? We, why are you not there? How did, how, we don't know how you got out. But here you are now. Again, doing it all over. Again. So could you please come with us? We've got to take you to another trial. Acts chapter 5, verse 26. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Can't make these guys folk heroes. People are already paying too much attention to them. We have to be really careful how we handle this. So here they are, back in front of the same people. Again, going through a trial. Again, threatened with death. Again. Acts 5, 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. 29. Peter. Peter, right? And the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection. Whom, and I'm not sure, I think I brought this up before, but let me just do it again. Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. I don't mean humanity did it. I mean you. In this room. the People sitting over there. And there's lots more of you than there are of us. You did it. You killed him. 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 33, when they heard this, they were furious, and wanted to put him to death. But there was a guy. There's a a wise old man there. He says, hold up. Wait a minute. Slow down for just a second. Remove them from the room. So, 38, he's now speaking to the group. He says, therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. 39. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. And you will only find yourselves fighting against God. 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in. And just because they had to exercise a little bit of power and control again, they had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Let them go. And that flogging was something that that they would carry the scars from for the rest of their life. It was meant to be an ongoing, never-ending source of shame for them. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 42. Day after day. This is how it went. After that, what are we going to do next? Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. So please don't miss this. If you're a Christian, these are our people, right? This is why we are here. This is how Christianity survived the first century and the second and the third and the start of the fourth centuries. This is how the message of Jesus survived the temple because the first persecution of Christians was not Rome. First persecution was from the temple. Christianity survived both the temple and the Roman Empire, and there was no book. There was no Bible. Not yet. There was something else. There was fearlessness and boldness. And there was courage because God had raised a man from the dead. And when God raises a man from the dead, you take everything that he had to say seriously. And when you've met that man, you're fearless. And these first century believers, before they were even called Christians, they embraced what I want you to embrace. They embrace the first century version of faith. Faith that stands on the rock. The resurrection rock. That's our foundation. Everything else comes after that. That's what we hang everything on. If that's not true, then the rest of it doesn't really matter. The foundation of your faith and mine is not only a book. It's an event. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christians eventually bound together these ancient manuscripts into the Bible. This is not new. It might be perhaps new to you. But this made perfect sense to Peter. What's the foundation of your faith, John? Where do you find your courage? And are you kidding? This is not just summed up in a a verse from Scripture. God raised his rabbi, his teacher, his friend, raised Jesus from the dead. And he has promised salvation to the whole world, to anyone who would want it. Now here's what Peter might offer to us as his testimony or explanation of his faith. When my teacher was arrested, I ran. When asked if I knew him, I lied. When the Romans crucified him, he died. And in that moment, maybe like some of you, in that moment I had no faith. I didn't know what to believe. I had no reason to believe. And when the women, they burst into the room early that morning to tell us that the body was missing, I did not assume a miracle. Because I'm no fool. And you're no fool. Have you ever seen a crucifixion? Of course you haven't. But no one survives crucifixion. I assumed, like all of us did, that someone had simply taken the body. Or perhaps the women got confused and they went to the wrong place. But I was curious, and I went to see for myself. Before I knew it, I'll admit it, I was running. And I was hopeful. But as John and I stared into that empty tomb... We didn't know what to think. Later, Mary Magdalene found us and said that she'd seen the Master alive, and I wouldn't allow myself to believe it. You have to understand, I had just spent three years of my life chasing a wannabe Messiah, a false prophet. I wasn't about to spend another season chasing ghosts. Besides, I had a price on my head. If if I wasn't careful, I would end up being a ghost myself. So that night, as was our habit, the boys and me, we found a safe house out of town. The doors were locked. We didn't want anyone getting in. We were huddled together, whispering about everything that had just happened. What are we going to do? That's when he came. Nobody saw him walk in but I swear to you, those doors were locked. But there he was, very much alive. My reason for believing isn't something that I've heard or read or had read to me. I believe what I believe because of what I saw. I watched him die. I know exactly where he was buried. God raised Him. And I saw Him. And I saw Him more than once. That's the reason. That's the only reason for my hope. That's the reason for your hope as well. And we will pick up the story there next episode. God, thank You for Your faithfulness throughout time. Thank You for your gift of Jesus, your pursuing love that comes after us. Thank you for the gift of resurrection and the promise of the power of resurrection available to us as well. Be with us. Guide us forward. Help us to be good witnesses. Thanks, in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us?